Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Good morning, everyone. I love the little videos that play on before I get to, like, come up and talk to you. It's just so hype, and I just have so much energy now. It's so amazing. So if you don't know me, my name is Cameron. I'm the worship pastor here at Compass, and Chris and Terry are also my parents. I've been here since the beginning, since I was, like, little, little. So before we jump into the verse we're going to talk about, I figured you should get to know me a little bit. And what's a better way to get to know me than get to know a little bit about one of my ex-boyfriends? So I'm going to tell you some stories. So I had met this guy. We're going to call him Mark. I'm not going to actually, like, name drop. That's super mean. Anyway, so Mark, I met him. I was like, you know what? I've never really, like, dated before. I think this might be a good fit. Like, he plays guitar. I play guitar. We both like serving on the worship team. I like serving on the worship team. He loves Jesus. I love Jesus. So, you know, what could go wrong? So we started dating. And there's three stories. Like, the more that I got to know him and the more that he got to know me, the more we kind of knew, like, this is probably not going to be a really good fit. So first story It had been about a month of dating. We only dated for like three months, so this is not a super long relationship by any means. Um, So after about a month of dating, I had dinner with his family. And I, I also, disclaimer, I know that like, judging someone by their parents is, is not good. Like, I know that like, people are different than their parents, but if you knew Mark, you knew he is exactly like his parents. So anyways, that's just the setup. (laughs) And so we're sitting at dinner, and I'm telling his family about my family um, and just about my siblings and my brother. And I was telling them that my sister Trinity, when we were growing up, she was always much more of a tomboy. Like, she's super into video games and all that stuff, and I'm not. And you would think at face value that I would be the one that's, like, really into baking and cooking and sewing and stuff like that. But it's actually Trinity. Trinity is so good at baking, and she's so good at sewing. And I was telling them about that. And Mark's dad, like, looked so confused. He looked at me, and he was like, I'm, I'm confused. Did your mother not teach you how to cook when you were a kid? And I, that was just such a weird position for me because, like, well, she did. And also, like, I don't want to throw my mom under the bus. Like, I just I didn't know how to read that. So just kind of a weird situation, really weird. Second story, there was one week, this was like 2020, you know, peak COVID. I had had a COVID exposure, so I needed to quarantine. And we ended up FaceTiming quite a bit. Um, And one night we were FaceTiming, and I was telling him about how I really liked watching scary movies. And I also mentioned that I liked the newest Billie Eilish album that had just come out around that time. And I was telling him about all that, telling him about the movies and music I liked, And he paused, I got to read this, I got to make sure I actually, like, say this correctly. So he paused, and, like, he just kind of, like, looked at me, like, through my phone, like, on FaceTime. And he was like, well, Cameron, what do you gain spiritually from consuming that kind of stuff? (laughs) And I was just so, I was so taken aback. I was like, I I, I don't, I mean, I just like watching scary movies and listening to Billie Eilish. Like, it really doesn't impact my relationship with Jesus at all, Um, and so I'm just, like, I'm sitting there, and, like, like, that's the kind of question that, like, when you tell, like, someone in your life who's, like, really judgmental or, like, a really, like, kind of judgmental youth pastor, like, something, 
and then they clearly don't approve of what you're doing, but instead of just saying, I don't approve of what you're doing, they try to like ask you like a probing question to like get you to come to that conclusion. Like I would rather be judged up front and just have him have said, I don't think you should be listening to Billie Eilish versus like, well, should you be listening to Billie Eilish? Like just judge me up front. Don't be passive in your judgment. Just be up front with me. Finally, this is the last story. This is about two months in, kind of before we just decided it would be better to not keep doing this. <laughs> Finally, we had had plans to hang out at his parents' house. Um, he sent me a text like around four in the afternoon and he said, hey, just so you know, none of my family is going to be home. Are you still comfortable coming over even though my parents aren't home? And I was like, yeah, that should be totally fine. I'm not worried. Disclaimer, we had not done anything. We had not held hands. We had not hugged nothing. Like when I tell you that nothing was going to happen, nothing was going to happen. So I was not worried about anything happened. Also, I'm an adult woman. I have self-control. Nothing was going to happen. And so fine, we settled. I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. And then about an hour and a half goes by and he sends me a text out of the blue. He says, why are you okay with not having any accountability when we hang out? <laughs> and I was so like, I, like, honestly, if he had just said, hey, can we just hang out at your parents' house? I'd be more comfortable with that. Great. That's great. Don't lay a trap for me to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. And so we just kind of decided this was not going to be a really good fit for either of us. We're very different people, and that's okay. I now have a boyfriend that I really, really like. You can put a picture of him up there. <laughs> He's wonderful. And, like, the more that I got to be around Mark, the more in focus I was with Mark, the more I was like, mm, we are not going to be a good fit. But the more that I am in focus with and hang out with Jacob, I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's so great. He's so wonderful. I really genuinely like him. He's great. And so now I have something that I've, once I've gotten to know him more, I, I really like Jacob. He's here. He's great. So I just wanted to tell you about my boyfriend. <laughs> he's so nice. That is his real name. His real name is Jacob. I didn't use a fake name for it. <laughs> So <laughs> we've been working through the book of Matthew verse by verse since about 2021. So it'll probably be like 2030 by the time we're done with Matthew. Um, but specifically, as we've been in this message series, um, we see Jesus begin to be much more clear about who he is and what he's doing. He started to bring himself more into focus. So today we're going to look at Matthew 16, 21 through 20. And buckle up. This is a really long, a really long chunk. All right. So from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. <coughs> he would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. So the disciples must have thought that this was some kind of parable that Jesus was telling them because they did not understand what Jesus was saying and it did not make any sense to them. So this is, this is actually the first time of many to come where Jesus brings into focus what lies ahead for him. This verse is the context for everything else to follow. But Peter took him aside and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) So I want to break this into two sections. So first, we're going to talk about Jesus's interaction with Peter. Jesus has a very extreme response to Peter. I feel like when we read Jesus, they'll like ask him a question or someone will say something and then he'll tell this like really profound parable that makes you think and ponder the existence of, I don't know, ponder your existence and ask more questions about God. But in this section, Jesus is very upfront with Peter. This is one of Jesus's harsher rebukes to his disciples. And obviously, like, he literally calls Peter Satan, which means adversary. Like, you are against me. And obviously, I think it's important we believe that all the teachings of Jesus as a whole are important and relevant to our lives as Christians. But I think that this verse should stand out purely because of how strong Jesus' reaction to Peter was. And in the section right before this interaction, Jesus tells Peter, he says... Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And so Peter heard this right before this interaction. I think it's safe to say that Peter probably thought Jesus was telling him about how much power and authority he was going to have. Being told that you're going to be the backbone of the church and hold the keys to the kingdom is a really, really big deal. To Peter, this meant he was going to be given a position of power and authority. Like, for example, have you ever met someone who, like, really, really wants to be a security guard, but, like, you don't know if they want to be a security guard for the right reason? Like, if you give them that shirt that says security on it, you're like, that's going to go to your head. Like, you know that. That's how I am reading Peter in this section. So that's, this is Peter in my mind. So when we examine, to, when we examine this, section, this section, it's important to understand the context in which Peter understood the definition of Messiah. So Peter heard Jesus for the first time confirm that he is truly the Messiah, the liberator, the savior, the deliverer who is coming to free them from the oppressive Roman government. So this is Peter's understanding of the Messiah. The most important thing to know about Messiahs is that Messiahs did not die. Plenty of other people came before Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of Man. They would gain a following, um, and then they would raise up an army. They would try to overthrow the government, and then the government would, would win, and the Messiah would be killed. And if the Messiah was killed, that was evidence that they were not the Messiah. And so this is Peter's understanding of who a Messiah was. For Peter, the most logical way for Jesus to take his rightful place as king was to start growing Jesus' following from the ground up. So you would grow his following. First, you would take over the religious leaders, and then you would have your eyes on the Roman government. 
This was the only context in which Peter understood the word Messiah to be. It's important to know here, Peter knew what he wanted Jesus to be, not who Jesus actually was. And so I think a good example of how Peter may have gone about things is Peter's way would probably look a lot like the January 6th insurrection. It would be violent and forceful. If there needed to be some injuries or collateral damage, that was fine because ultimately Jesus needed to be in his position of authority as king. And I think that's really important. Jesus had such an extreme reaction to Peter because of how wrong Peter was about the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus has never been and never will be through force or violent acts. I think Jesus reacted extremely because he saw in Peter and he, he saw in Peter extremism and he saw that Peter, if asked, that Peter would likely be willing to do extreme and violent things in his name. Jesus told Peter exactly what the, the way of the Messiah was, that it's not gained through worldly means or through violence or, or power or authority. Jesus' way is the exact opposite. The way of Jesus is the way of humility and love for the people around you. So that's just the setup for the second teaching in this chunk. In the second passage, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? First, I want to point out is the meaning of the cross. We're really far from crucifixion being used as, like, a common way to execute people. And I'm okay with that. I think it's a pretty good thing. I like living where we are now. So when we read this, we can often miss the, the gravity and heaviness of what Jesus is asking of his disciples. In Jesus' day, the people he was talking to, they would have known what take up your cross means. Taking up your cross means literally you are carrying the tool that is going to be used to brutally torture and execute you. That is what the cross symbolized in that day. Jesus' listeners would have immediately understood what he was asking his disciples to do. And I also want to make sure that we kind of understand what taking up your cross means. Sometimes I think, and I can slip into this mindset too, so this is, this is also for me as well. Um, we can easily kind of slip into the mindset that taking up your cross is the equivalent of a struggle that we have going on in our lives. And I, I think the Bible has a lot to say about the difficult things that we go to, that we go through, but it's just different than taking up your cross. Christians and non-Christians alike all deal with different struggles and trials in their life that they didn't choose. But what's important to know about taking up your cross is that it is a deliberate choice that we have to make every single day as followers of Jesus. It's not something that just happens to us. It is something that we deliberately choose to do. It's not forced on us, and we don't get to force it on others either. It's a choice that we make every day to humble ourselves and take the same position as Christ as when he was being crucified. We don't get to, like, it's the choice that we don't just associate with Jesus after the resurrection, 
and with the healings and with all of the highs of Jesus' ministry, but we're also taking the position of humility that Jesus took when he was executed. And realistically, I was thinking about this. All of us here, I think it's safe to say, we all live in the United States. We're not going to be executed for our faith, and we're, really, we're not being persecuted. And so what, what do we do with this? Because it looks a little bit differently for us than it does for Jesus' disciples in that time. And before I, I, we jump into um, just the what can I do to take up my cross type of application, I think it's important to examine what's going on in our own hearts before we're able to actually take tangible action. It's asking the question, how do we view the people around us? What motivates someone who takes up their cross every day? Ultimately, the way of the cross and the way of the world are motivated by two different things. The way of the world is motivated by fear, and the way of the cross is motivated by love. For example, someone who is driven by fear will do anything to stay in control. Fear drives people to violence, much like January 6th. They interviewed people who were there. They said, hey, why'd you do that? You knew that was wrong. They were like, well, I was afraid that, you know, Donald Trump wasn't going to be the rightful president even when he was. They were afraid that they were going to lose their position of power and authority in the United States. Fear drives people, for example, fear drives people to, to ban things that you don't understand or that we don't that we disagree with. Fear drives people to ban history books with content on slavery and segregation and some of the messier sides of US history because you're afraid of how your kids will feel about the United States. You're afraid that your kids will feel uncomfortable learning about our history. And so it's better to just avoid it and ban it than to be able to sit with the discomfort. Fear ultimately blinds us to the humanity of others, and it can make us cruel. But those who are motivated by love can see the humanity in people that they disagree with or would even say are their enemy. Love of others motivates us to take up our cross and do the right thing and put others first with humility and love even when it takes away our own privilege and power, and even when it may cost what feels like our lives. Taking up your cross every day is really hard. It's not easy. We have some family friends who, this was um, years back, we were talking about, you know, it was an election cycle. Election season is like, I think, the worst era, like, ever. I hate it. It's so, yeah, exactly, it's so awful, and everyone's stressed and tense, it's terrible. Um, but we had some like family friends, they're also pastors that we know, and they were talking about who they were voting for. And they mentioned, they were like, well, you know, we know that this person that we're supporting, that their character is really bad, that they don't act in a way that's moral or lines up with Christ. But we're afraid that if we don't vote for them, that our church will lose its tax-exempt status. And this is not me telling you who you should or should not vote for. This is just an example that I wanted to share. They knew in their conscience that what in their conscience that what they were doing was wrong, but because they were afraid, they still did it. Because of their fear, they were unwilling to take up their cross and deny themselves. But here's the thing. 
and this is the main point of everything. Taking up your cross means living a life that uplifts those around you, even at the expense of your own privilege and power. And that's the really hard part, because it's really easy to say, like, yeah, I love the people around me. I love my community. I would do anything for them. But when it actually comes down to it and you might have to lose something, we kind of back off because that's really difficult. It's way easier said than done. Taking up your cross could look like voting for policies that you know are going to help those who are oppressed. It means thinking of the most vulnerable person in your life and saying, which policy is going to help them? And you're not looking at how am I going to be benefited when you're filling out your ballot. I think it means being okay with paying a little bit extra for your child's school lunch. If it means that other kids who can't afford to eat get a lunch at school. It means going out of your way to visit someone that you know is really, really lonely and is really, really struggling. It means helping your neighbor buy groceries when you know that they just lost their job. Even if it means you might be overspending on your groceries this month. Taking up your cross means being willing to, to sacrifice and be inconvenienced in the smallest and biggest ways for the good of others. It means viewing people as Jesus does and being genuinely willing to love them. You can't love your neighbor if you fear them. You just can't, it's impossible. The opposite of love is actually, it's not hate, it's fear. In 1 John 14, 16 through 20, and this is what we read during worship, it says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this is the important part. And it shows that we have not truly understood, excuse me, have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. And this part is really important. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? Jesus says again in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, love each other in the way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. God is telling us, like, you can't say that you love me. You can't, you can't see me. We can't see God. But there are people in front of us who are tangible and we can physically reach out and touch. And if we are not able to love them, then we don't understand God's love. We can't see God, but we can see people in front of us that God has put in front of us and has said, I want you to love them regardless of the cost. And here's the thing. When we look at Jesus's life, Jesus felt fear. I'm sure that he felt afraid when he was literally taking up his cross. It's written the night before he was crucified. He asked God, he said, if there is, no other, if there is another way, please, I don't want to do this. But what ultimately drove Jesus to take up his cross was how much he loved God's people. We know that Jesus could have just said, I'm not doing this, I'm out. Like, Jesus had the power and authority to do that, but he didn't. 
Jesus was not driven by fear, but by love. So much so that as people were nailing him to a cross, preparing to kill him and torture him, he asked God, he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I know we're never gonna be in in an extreme situation like that, but how often are we engaging with people like that? When maybe people misunderstand who we are, How often do we respond with just nastiness and being mean, but instead saying, God, they don't understand my motives and please help me to forgive them. So an example for me, when I was like a freshman in college, I used to listen to a lot of like true crime podcasts because I just thought it was interesting. Um, I ended up stopping just because I found that I was really anxious. Like I would be in my cubicle at State Farm, like just like answering emails and I would have like, I would have the anxiety levels of someone who's being hunted for sport. Like it was so, so awful. I was just so anxious all the time. But this point, this was the point where it really kind of hit like a breaking point for me. Was the content I was consuming, it ended up changing the way that I viewed people who were different than me or who were strangers. And so this is like, this is me sharing something that I'm not super proud of, just so you know. But I was, um, I was walking to Coffee Hound in downtown Bloomington and there was an unhoused man on the street and he like walked up and approached me. Um, I don't really remember what he was asking for. He was asking for assistance and I got so scared and I was so uncomfortable that I just didn't say anything. I just kept walking. And like, I look back on that interaction and I am just not proud of that at all. One, because I should know better. I'm a social work student at ISU. All of our like curriculum and content is on, you know, learning about people who are in marginalized communities and dispelling myths surrounding them. And I even logically, logically I know that this person that I had ignored is more likely to be a victim of violence perpetrated by me than I am to be a victim of their violence. But I was so afraid and I was viewing people through the lens of fear that I couldn't even understand logic. And I surely wasn't able to love that person the way that Jesus does. What are you consuming that may make you fear your neighbor? One final example, and I really like to I started listening to other podcasts and I feel so snobby when I'm like, I like to listen to podcasts, but I was listening to this podcast and it was going through the history of school integration and it was called, I think it's called nice white parents or something and how the reality in like the sixties is you had a lot of white parents who you would ask, Hey, are you for school integration? And they would be like, yes, I fully support school integration. I don't think we should be segregating schools anymore. But then when it, the issue, what issue started to arise was when it came down to it, they were not willing to send their kids to an integrated school. Because integrated schools, they knew that they weren't going to be as funded as the, well, you couldn't actually label them white schools anymore, but we know functionally they weren't as funded as the white schools. And how... And how that inaction in the 60s is still kind of a thing that is still impacting and affecting us today, except it looks a little more like income inequality that's been perpetuated by racism and segregation. And so 
you have parents who will say like, yeah, I am in support of like, you know, sending our kids to schools that have a diverse, you know, range of socioeconomic statuses and are diverse in ethnicity and race and religion. But when it comes down to it, if you can afford and choose the fancy private school where your kids are gonna be away from all the other kids, that's what we end up choosing. And, and this is something that I, I was really little at the time um, that I think I was reflecting on when I was listening to this about how that something my parents I think really got right when we were kids. Um, we ended up living in Kansas City, Missouri for a little bit and we moved back here in town because my parents wanted to start Compass. Um, and they were trying to figure out what schools we were gonna go to. They were asking around like, hey, where should we go? And the public school that was in our area, everyone was like, don't send them to that school. The kids there are violent, the teachers are mean, the test scores are super low. And my mom was reading like just reviews of that school and someone said, I wouldn't send my dog to this elementary school. And so just like a lot of fear surrounding this, just a normal elementary school. And even like literally, when I was a kid attending that elementary school, literally right next door is like a private Christian school. And like there's like a fence like dividing it. And we could see like their nicer playground versus our like dinky playground. And I had a very deep sense of justice even at like age seven. I was like, why do they get a nicer playground? That's not fair. So just all of that to say, my parents at the advice of, they, my parents went against the advice of other people and decided, no, we wanna genuinely love our community and be with our community. And so if it means that our kids don't get to go to a school that has a ton of funding or a nice new theater or sports program, that's okay. Because we're willing to lay that down to love the people in our schools and our community. And I also just, huge disclaimer, this is not me telling you, like if your kid's in a private school, that's not me telling you that you should take your kids out of private school and being in public school is the only way you can take up your cross. This is just an example that's been prevalent in our lives. And also, realistically, school choice is a huge privilege. And I know that like, if we were in a position where we needed tutoring or extra support at school, that my parents were gonna help us at home if the school couldn't offer it. And I just, I looked back on that and I'm like, that is a way that, my parents weren't thinking in terms of like race or social justice, they were just thinking in terms of how do we genuinely love our neighbor and love our community. And that was a decision that I really, really have admired as I've gotten older. And I just wanna reiterate again, it is impossible to take up your cross if you are driven by fear. We have to first start being motivated by our love for others. Because everybody's example of taking up your cross in your own life is gonna look different. It's gonna look different for me than it is for you. But what matters the most is first what we're motivated by. Are we fearful of our neighbors or do we love our neighbors? Making a choice to take up your cross is really difficult, but it's easier if we start with a foundation of love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you first took up your cross literally out of love for us, Lord.
God, then we, that when we did not deserve your love and your mercy and forgiveness, that you gave it freely because you loved us, Lord. God, I thank you that you were not driven by fear of us, Lord, but God, driven purely by love of others. God, we know that taking up our cross is difficult. It's not an easy decision or choice to make. But God, would you first help us to genuinely love the people around us, Lord. God, that even when we may feel afraid that we can hold our fear and love others at the same time, Lord. God, help us to examine our hearts and and God, expel the fear in our lives, Lord. God, expel the things that maybe would make us cruel to people around us, Lord. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, God, that you ultimately took up your cross first. And God, we want to take the position of humility and be more like you, Lord. And it's in your wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.